This recording is part of the Honouring Australian Writers series, where Writing New South Wales pays tribute to writers who have made an important contribution to our literary culture. In 2020, we honour renowned author, journalist, playwright and political activist Catherine Susanna Pritchard. As part of re-examining Pritchard's legacy, this conversation between Jacqueline Wright and Janine Lean critically considers Pritchard's 1929 novel Coonadu and its place within a broader context of how Aboriginal people have been portrayed in their colonizers' stories. In this discussion are Jacqueline Wright, editor, teacher and author, with over 20 years' experience as a linguist in WA's remote northwest on Australian Aboriginal language, interpreting and cultural programs, and Janine Lean, Radjuri writer, poet and academic who has published widely in the area of Aboriginal literature, writing otherness and creative non-fiction. This conversation was recorded during NAIDOC week and Writing New South Wales recognises the 2020 theme always was, always will be. First Nations people are the original storytellers on this land and have occupied and cared for this continent for over 65,000 years. Hello and welcome to the Honouring Australian Writers series through Writing New South Wales. This series plays tribute to significant Australian writers and in 2020 we focus on Catherine Susanna Pritchard. My name is Jacqueline Wright and I'm speaking to a Wiradjuri writer, poet and academic from southwest New South Wales, Janine Lean, about Pritchard's novel Coonadoo. Coonadoo was first published in 1929 in serial form in the Bulletin under the name of Jim Ash Burton. Readers were shocked to the core. The Bulletin received hundreds of letters of protest. More progressive writers like Vance Palmer were worried that Pritchard would ruin their chances of having more candid works published. But before we get into this conversation proper, I'd first like to pay my respects to the elders, past, present and emerging, from all over Australia, in particular the Pemberland clan of the Awabakal people, the Newcastle area in New South Wales, whose country I moved to recently from the Kimberley in WA. And funnily enough, it's the same place that Coonadoo was set. In my mind, this country, in fact, all of Australia, is and always will be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander land. Janine, I'm gonna throw it over to you now. I'm sure you'd like to make your own acknowledgements. Thank you, Jackie. Um, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that um, I'm speaking to you today from um, Ngunnawal country in Canberra. And I'd like to acknowledge that um, I lived and worked here for 30 years and had my children here and pay my respects to this beautiful country and elders past, present and emerging. I'd also like to pay my respects to Wiradjuri people who are my people, who I belong to, and pay my respects to the, um, to the greater Kulin nations of Nam, Melbourne, where I um, live and work as well. Um, and thank you for that acknowledge, for giving me the chance to, to make that acknowledgement because I'd also like to acknowledge all Aboriginal people in NAIDOC week, this week. And I'd also, in particular, because we're talking about Catherine Pritchard, like to make an acknowledgement to all Aboriginal people, to all of us who've lived with this legacy of representation that we're going to talk about today. 
Absolutely. Thanks, Janine. Now, let's get into the nitty-gritty of Pritchard's novel, Coonadoo. Starting perhaps with the broader context of when the story was released. So Australia was between wars and it was at the start of the Depression. Pritchard was a member of the Communist Party, which was pretty radical in those days. Janine, do you think she had a hand in driving a largely ignored, grossly misrepresented race to a place of social justice? Um, ultimately, social justice, no. And I don't know if any white writer's really going to do that for Aboriginal people. Um, in terms of creating a different kind of awareness, yes, this novel did rupture a certain familiarity in Australian literature to date. Um, representation of the Aboriginal person, the Aboriginal subject, us as peoples, although you wouldn't necessarily get that from the representations themselves, in Australian literature isn't new. And my PhD looks across a lot of those representations with a particular focus on a couple of really enduring ones, and one of those was Pritchard's. But it began, you know, in the early 1800s, the um, white representation of Aboriginal people and, and the deployment of Aboriginal people in, the, in white consciousness to define themselves. In order to define themselves in a new colony, white people need to displace and, and displace, dispossess and then redefine the people and the space that they're taking. And um, this book is a long line in, in, in a number of books that does that. But my particular interest in that is you did touch on the radicalness of um, Catherine Pritchard in other ways. I believe she, um, she was a communist until 1968, the invasion of, of Prague or the crushing of the Prague Spring. I believe she was the first person in Perth to have the milkman deliver yoghurt. You know, I mean, I think she... <laughs> A radical for a white person, radical within a culture of sameness, I guess. Um, and in her representation of Coonadoo, the thing about that that was radical was she was the first Australian author to name a work in, in the um, 20th century after an Aboriginal character, after an Aboriginal female character, and at least attempt to probe some of that sub some of the subjectivity of that character, although it is a very limited attempt. And it makes more comment, although people didn't read it that way at the time, this is the dangerous thing. Her attempt to give an Aboriginal woman in this case um, some subjectivity is often read as the subjectivity of the Aboriginal woman not an attempt of a white woman to domesticate a black subject or to articulate a problem in her white mind. And it also does more to expose something that's on the agenda. Right now, the limits of the white imagination mm. comes to otherness. But, yes, the book did create a controversy and the controversy was not about social injustices to Aboriginal people. It was not about dispossession or um, degradation. The controversy was about the possibility of love mm. between a white man and an Aboriginal woman and all that that raises on the frontier. Yeah, that interracial sexuality, that was a first really 
at, the, at that time. And what that raises on the frontier in terms of legitimacy and inheritance. Mm, yeah. And entanglement. Interesting. Um, so even though, even though Pritchard in some ways, and as you pointed out, ruptures this kind of deep-seated prejudice of right Australia and ruptures that idea of um, sexuality um, happening between races, it's a very problematic text, wouldn't you agree? It's a highly problematic text and it's a text that, in addition to the academic interest I've had in the text, it's, it, and my, my encounter with the text was even involuntary because it's Australian canon and I think other Aboriginal people, other Aboriginal women may have had a similar experience and Larissa Berent I know is someone who has spoken, written to some extent about this. But... Yeah, tell me a little bit about that, Janine, about when you first came across Coonagoo yeah, as a novel. because I think that's important. When I first came across was in high school in the 70s and it was canon. And um, so we had to read it as, you know, as a great piece of Australian literature. And um, we were... I was the only Aboriginal person in the class, in the school at that time. Uh, and this was in a, in a school in Wagga, in the Wagga Wagga in the 1970s. And so the impact of that was first and foremost, being the only Aboriginal person in the class, people immediately looked at me because he's a representation of an Aboriginal woman and people looked at me, people asked all sorts of dumb questions like, is that where the word coon comes from? And Larissa Berent speaks of an experience of even being as the only Aboriginal person in her class when another class, not even her class, was reading Coonadoo, but some people in the school called her Coonadoo. Now, the book says a lot about Aboriginal women beyond Coonadoo. She's just, she is described in one, you know, quite shocking scene where she succumbs. It, it's, it's a rape scene, really, but Pritchard doesn't even write it like a rape scene. Pritchard writes it like her succumbing to a white man because she cannot control this wild sexual animal urge about her and she can't control her instincts. And there's several points in the novel where she's described more in terms of animal husbandry than that of a woman. She's described as a horse, a dog, a minx, a filly. Um, and she just cannot control her own sexual desires and that's... That is how she's constructed in this book. And this book makes all sorts of statements about the intellect of Aboriginal women, um, about the uh, sexuality of Aboriginal women. And what people fail to realise is it makes all these from a white standpoint. Mm. And I remember becoming quite annoyed and upset about this book in my class. And even my teacher's words were unfortunate and telling because they said to me, I need to lighten up because this is not really a book about you. But it is really a book about me and I think that's what people fail to realise. I, I... The Aboriginal people I know. And I don't really know if the classroom... The um, classroom might be a little bit more externally sensitive, but I don't really know if the classroom's moved a huge way from there. Uh, you know, it might be a little bit more overtly sensitive, but 
in terms of kind of like assumptions around representation. I don't know if the classrooms move that much. Yeah. Yes, we. I think we like to hope that it's moved, but I think you're right, it's been very small, very baby steps. Uh, Janine, I would like to go back to that idea of the legacies of representations of Indigenous women in these kinds of novels. As an Aboriginal woman, you have to live with these representations. What are the legacies of those portrayals? Yeah, and the legacy, well, we see in Coonerjoo, the legacies of these portrayals are long and lasting and it is this speaking of the limits of the white imagination and, you know, one of the biggest limits of the white imagination is probably the way it imagines itself as limitless. Because um, in this kind of entrapment, there is this kind of, there is this continued legacy of minorities who in the in the in the aftermath of this and other works like it who have to sort of continue to say well that's not a representation of us that's a representation of the limits of someone else's imagination and we want to represent ourselves but one of the things in in alongside the damaging representation itself one of these one of the things that this book and books like it leave is the legacy that white people can write whatever they want and that it will not have any impact, that it will be benign Mm. and that it will be a white writer is entitled to, you know, experiencing and experimenting in writing with another culture. And and even Pritchard's motivation for this is interesting and telling and and a long-lasting legacy. She said... She was inspired to write the story of Coonadu because a friend of hers on a remote cattle station in the Kimberley told her the story of an Aboriginal woman who was driven to such madness, as the friend quotes, that she flung her own baby into a dry creek bed, this Aboriginal woman, while she was mustering cattle. And Pritchard writes, you know, she was, A, intrigued by this, and she wanted to learn more about the tragedy of this, so she felt she had to go and travel to the outback and make this the subject of a story. Essentially a story that she profited from in many ways. Essentially a story that she very much profited from. And it was on this visit to a cattle station that she, in 1927, that she witnessed... um, what she calls a corroboree that could have been any number of Aboriginal ceremonies. She calls it a corroboree, which is kind of like a big and amorphous and nebulous representation in itself. It would have been a religious ceremony. And I don't have a copy of my novel here, but I just I've quoted this bit in the paper. And at you know, at the start of the Pritchard novel, Pritchard says to a station hand called Sol, I'm witnessing a cat. The character of Mummy, who was really Pritchard, says to a station hand, Saul, regarding a corroboree, what was all that about? Kuna do, hears Mummy say to Saul Hardy the next day, although Mummy had been eavesdropping on the corroboree herself. He says, I don't know. It had some sex significance, I suppose. Fire is male and they, that's the Aboriginal people, 
Uh, they believe smoke caused by men in these dances impregnates some female spirit which dispenses life for birds, beasts, coolies, bodies, and even the abos themselves, I think. So, yeah, it simplifies, um, you yeah. know, a very important ceremony, you know. Well, and it opens with that very reductionist approach in, in beyond simplifying that ceremony. And so you're talking about the legacy. Okay, the legacy, one of the legacies is this kind of reductionism this kind of equation with of Aboriginal people with instinct rather than intellect. Yeah, absolutely. Again, going back to that animalistic kind of uh, notion of Aboriginal people. Yeah. And when, interestingly too, I guess when Pritchard sets out to go and write this book, she already says before she leaves Perth, and I, I sort of quoted this bit, in my thesis, she said something about she travels to, um, yeah, she travels to this cattle station in 1926 and 1927 with her young son, Rick, at the time, who's only four. And uh, as a young child, Rick is permitted to play with some of the Aboriginal children on the station. And she says, um, watching Rick play with these little Aboriginal girls in particular, gives her the idea of writing a tragedy. Mm. Right? Always going to be a tragedy. Yeah. A tragedy of an Aboriginal girl's love for a non-Aboriginal man. And it's interesting the way she wrote that. That's a quote out of her own journal. The tragedy is the Aboriginal girl's love for the man. She doesn't write that it was reciprocated, although she does imply in her novel that it was. And, you know, it's very clear that, that this kind of, entanglement this kind of potentially romantic entanglement even though it's grossly unequal attraction between Hugh and Kunadu is going to be a tragedy for the white man. Mm. There's also that insinuation that Aboriginal people are unable to adapt and they're reliant on white Australians that's that's a highly contentious issue within the novel I find. It is a highly contentious issue within the novel and it's almost implied within the novel that Aboriginal people, it is implied within the novel, and I kind of wrote this in my thesis and I've addressed this in a number of essays, Aboriginal people in the novel, in Pichard's novel, are constructed as needing saving by white people of their just own rampant animal, base animal instincts, Mm. rampant sexuality. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting talking about the legacies of of writing then on... um, on today, the social manifestations of that. I think it's, you know, it's important that we situate texts within historical contexts. But I also think or I I believe that that is just sort of like letting non-Aboriginal writers off the hook. Could you comment on that? Yeah, um, I think that's a good question as well Um, because I think both important and... um, but people don't conflate the two together and it does end up being very dangerously, like you say, when people take a text and they say, oh, yes, but Catherine was a product of her time. Um, and so you can't judge her outside that time. Okay, well, I'd like to just present the flip side of that first. The text <laughs> continued to be read outside her time. Yeah, Exactly. And we're asked, you know, other readers are asked to take this text on and take it seriously way beyond her time. Mm. I think that's something to consider that is the emitting. And a lot of 
wide arguments operate or have previously won by omission because there's no other speak-back position. But, you know, then someone comes along and says, yeah, but, you know, the flip side of that is that they're read beyond their own times and they leave lasting marks on after their own times. It is important to go back, though, and look at racist texts like Pritchard's, like Xavier Herbert's, like Patrick White's, and they're not all old, like Kate Grendel's, which is only less than 20 years old. It's important to go back and look at those racist texts because they form a pattern, and that can be useful. What is that pattern, Janine? The pattern is this continued representation of Aboriginal subjects as a different figment of white imaginations at different times. Like Patrick White adopts the same privilege and the same kind of, like, takes the same rightly craft arguments for his representations of the Butchula people in a fringe of leaves. But then writing in a different time in the late 60s and late 70s when... It's apparent. So when Pritchard's writing, it's not apparent that Aboriginal people could still be the dying race when Pritchard's writing. Mm, that's right. And I think that... That's yeah. important to remember. But when White's writing, it, 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 we no longer are going to oblige by dying. So Patrick White um, brings another representation to the fore, but it still represents, represents sorry, an attempt at control and what White does is make a representation of kind of like a bit like Michael, the French guy, Michael Montiage's essay on cannibalisms. Patrick White makes a more eloquent too, I, I think, argument for cultural relativism but he still, um, but he does two things that are interesting. One, he absolves himself completely from the colonial picture. Um, <laughs> As if you can do that, just yeah, cut yourself can off. Do that, but a lot of people do, interestingly, try and do that. It's, it's kind of like all the other rough colonials, not Patrick. But apart from absolving himself from the colonial picture, he paints a picture of a society that is viable, yeah, which Pritchard doesn't, but he does, but it's completely savage and it's completely ahistorical, timeless, and incapable of evolution. Yeah, he sort of puts, and, and, and Pritchard does to a certain extent, he puts that emphasis on Europeans battling courageously against the backdrop of natural hazards. Oh, yeah, he does. The that. Aboriginal person being one of those natural hazards. Natural, yeah, that's right, that's right. And it's interesting when White's book, The Saviour of the White Woman Who Spends Time, oh, the whole book is interesting too, A Fringe of Leaves, even the representation, because he writes it like, a captive narrative and so many people have, oh yes uh, based on the what they call the capture of eliza fraser look it's a rescue narrative mm. these white women get marooned when they're trespassing so we've got rescue narratives we've got the tragedies like kunadu and let's come back to kunadu i mean i really cringe when i read her descriptions of aboriginal people the main character kunadu for example is portrayed as a cross between a faithful child and a pet. Yeah. And in its day, Coonerdoo generated a great deal of debate around stereotypes, and it continues to this day, but in a different kind of way. Do you want to expand on that idea? 
Yeah, a great deal. Coonerdoo generates a great deal of controversy about stereotypes and it still continues today as in, in principle of that argument. And it, and it comes to the surface in things that I'm kind of writing about at the moment and I've addressed in two earlier, 2000, or began to address, not they'll never be addressed, <laughs> began to address, as did Alexis Wright in a wonderful piece in Me Engine called What Happens When You Tell Someone Else's Story. And issues of representation have particularly um, become contested now because there are First Nations peoples, there are minority writers now who were considered on the margins, and perhaps we are, but we can reposition and remobilise and reclaim those margins because, after all, we do encircle the centre and we can push in on it and crisscross against it. And that hasn't happened before, right? The centre, the white settlerism has had Carter Blanche, and that's a not an unfortunate pun, that's a deliberate pun. Carter Blanche means a white <laughs> blanche, doesn't it? Assuming right. white is blank, but white is not blank, white is a colour. Mm. And so the recent, so recently, say, for example, a couple of years ago, um, Saturday Paper made, I'm paraphrasing, made a request that when submitting to a particular story, story prize, that writers not take on the voices of communities that they don't belong to, right, minority group communities that they don't belong to. And that ensued a big backlash from all white writers because they suddenly feel this challenge for the first time ever because no-one's ever said, hey, you can't represent us anymore or your, represent your imagination is not limitless and you are no longer able to speak for us. Mm, that place of privilege. That place. And also there's a confusion around people who are really perhaps immersed in who know a minority group, you know, so someone who maybe has an Aboriginal partner over 30 years or something and has been immersed in that community could write a story with secondary Aboriginal characters in it because they're immersed in that community. But no matter mm. how immersed they are, they could never voice an Aboriginal character. No and should never try and someone who was that respectful and that immersed wouldn't it's only people from outside who do that and so there is this confusion now around what is cultural appropriation what is voice appropriation what is respectful representation because mm. in respectful representation you can acknowledge minority groups and you can write about other people if you know them and if you don't voice them if you write about that, if you do it in such a way that is collaborative and reciprocal. Mm. Yeah, a community with the people you're going to write about and think about why you think it's your right to do so. That's right, exactly. Um, and also I think what would you say to authors, and I'm playing the devil's advocate, if they are, they've got a, uh, a story that they're situating in an area, a remote area where there's a lot of Indigenous, um, there's a high Indigenous population, would you prefer those authors to not include Indigenous, in, indigenous characters and, and effectively write them out of the story? Um, How would you, what would be your recommendation there? I'd prefer the writer would be in consultation with the community. <laughs> Yeah. First and foremost. Um, and so I, I couldn't really speak for a community where that's happening, but hypothetically what I would prefer is that the writer 
would be if the writer did want to seek to write about their experience in and with that community, A, that they would seek collaboration of the community and that they will keep their own voice and not voice anyone else in the community or offer any hypothetical thesis statements about blackness in this community when they've been there for five minutes or five months or ideally I couldn't that's a hard question because I like what I would ideally think is okay do you know this community that you're going to represent and why do you want to represent them the answer is not necessarily no but the first point of call is do you know them yeah and do they know you that's even a better question do they know you and can you you know really can you represent these people as secondary characters? Because if you live in a community with people, then, yeah, that's right. People feel like, well, okay, I don't want to admit omit people in my community or I don't want to omit people in my neighbourhood. Okay, there is a space that people can work towards between, between what is respectful and reciprocal acknowledgement and representation of diversity in communities and just what is downright stealing and cultural and cultural and voice appropriation. Yeah. I, place, I, it's a hard one to find. And people have to really work towards it. And I, it is a space that white, sorry, it is a space that white writers need to work with diverse writers to get to. That's right. And, and every community will be different. There won't, won't be. Uh, Janine, I'd like to go back to that notion of entanglement that you raised earlier on and how now with the great emergence of fantastic Indigenous voices in Australian literature has now kind of captured what modern paradigms failed to capture and that's that complex relations between and between people. And it acknowledges the, that diversity happens in and between Aboriginal groups. Um, in, in, that, in, 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 in terms of entanglement, do you think Pritchard even touches on that notion of entanglement in Coonadoo? I think that inadvertently she does but she doesn't, that's not her intention. Her intention is this is kind of a prophetic warning story, that this is, this is what will happen to a white man if they even hint at becoming <clears throat> romantically attached to an Aboriginal woman, albeit however unequal that relationship between Coonadoo uh, and Hugh, Hugh was. And she even paints an antagonist of Hugh, who is Sam Geary, who is, ah, yes, that lecherous drunk from well, the neighbouring cattle station. It's a very interesting read for me, and I teased this out in an essay, because as a white author, Catherine Pritchard paints Sam Geary as despicable, lecherous, horrible, because he lives with an Aboriginal woman openly and freely. She's actually got silk dresses and a gold watch, and she's allowed to drive his car and um, live in a house that's a proper house. That is shocking to Pritchard through the character of Mummy. And Sam Geary's entanglement that Catherine Pritchard tries to construct as so immoral and terrible is quite interesting to me because that's 
that is actually more like a realistic um, and this the, the relationship the equality in that relationship is very skewed as well but there is much more equality and kind of recognition of agency of Aboriginal women in those relationships that Geary has than there is in the ones that Pritchard affords and so I think inadvertently she acknowledges entanglement and she constructs it as this problem and, and kind of is advocating a disentanglement that's absolutely impossible. And you also made a very good point that, yes, Aboriginal writers write really beautifully and complexly and nuancedly about entanglement and I think about, say, Mullumbimbi by Melissa Lukashenko and the complex relationships the protagonist, Joe, the Aboriginal Bundjalung protagonist, Joe, has with, well, with white settlers, but also with other things introduced, with horses. That's a really interesting, she wages war on a lot of introduced species, but then pauses, this character, pauses amidst that to think, but I love horses. <laughs> and that's very interesting. That, and don't you know, underestimate that on the part of the author, Melissa Lukashenko, or kind of like the simple symbolism of how Aboriginal people are, are much better at um, uh, acknowledging and just writing into because we are entangled. And as a theorist, I highly recommend um, the work of... Torres Strait Islander, Martin Nakata, because he talks about interfaces hmm. and the idea of there being no one Aboriginal culture and no one settler culture anymore. What is really interesting, though, and this comes across in literature, is while we as Aboriginal people and, and other minority groups as well, but I'll speak as a First Nations person, while we as Aboriginal people are always aware of the influence white society has on us all the time and what we can take on and what we have to kind of resist. White society is not aware of the or can't acknowledge the continuing influence that Aboriginal society has had on it since its, since its incursion here. Um, and that interfacing is so important and so interesting and something that we do really well in our novels because we write about white characters and that along the same lines of entanglement, people go, well, why do you do that when you get upset when people write about Aboriginal characters? <clears throat> well, we don't necessarily get upset when people write about Aboriginal characters. It's how they write about Aboriginal characters. We would, I think we all get upset if someone who's not Aboriginal tries to first-person voice an Aboriginal character because that's straight-out voice-stealing. But the reason why we write about our non-Aboriginal characters is because we know them. <laughs> and because we're so immersed in all things non-Aboriginal as well as things Aboriginal. And the reciprocal is not true. Mm. And if and that could be the case with a settler writer, well, yeah, they could represent us better. They still never voice us. But I've never written a book where I've been a white character. I've written no. books that have represented white characters that I have known intimately, but I've represented them as secondary characters because I can never be them, no, ma no matter how I own, you know, and even my own father, late father, I mean, yeah, he was around for pretty much all of my life, you know, most of it. So I suppose he's someone I know really well, but not, I suppose, you know, I could confidently represent him, but never be him. This is the difference between respectful 
and informed representation and appropriation, stealing. Mm. And I, you know, like I think it's amazing that when uh, white writers write from Indigenous perspectives or represent Indigenous people and there is protest from the Indigenous community, that they, they feel like that is unfair. That's, that that um, is something that really... Well, that's an interesting irony and I think that's worth an essay. I'm sort of working on something like that. <laughs> Look, the interesting irony of unstated white identity politics. You're right, yes. When um, a right writer voices or writes in, in misrepresentation of an Indigenous character, we speak out, there's this, this backlash. We can protest. We, you can you protest. can't. And, and we get and we get caught accused of identity politics, but but that's the biggest identity politics of all. I mean, what is identity politics other than a group of people who identify under a common culture and 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 push for a voice and try to seek and you know control of the cultural production of their own representation? That's what white culture does. That's identity politics. It's just because it's white that gets black to the car to blanch the blank page. Mm. It's assumed by the rest of whiteness not to have a colour. So I think in response to that, yeah, all right, we're starting to call that out. I'm glad you noticed that. And I guess we don't like it. But, you know, you reposition yourself. Like I kind of reposition the margins, or if you like, as a place of power because, okay, but we do surround the centre though. You can, you can actually push in on the centre. Yeah, which but, is important. And um, I think yeah. I think a lot of... I mean, as you were saying, there's plenty of engaged and talented Indigenous writers who have been published now, thank goodness. Yes, there are. Who are really pushing, pushing into that centre and they're providing essential, refreshing, seminal perspectives on the issues that we have touched on. You recommended Melissa Lukashenko's book and um, Martin's book. Yeah, Martin's not a yeah. writer, but as a theorist in terms of understanding interfaces, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would, I, I'm going to do a plug for Mugabala Books because um, I used to be an editor for Mugabala yeah. and I, there's just a plethora of fiction, non-fiction, biography, memoir, um, children's narratives, children's books, yes, poetry, yes. Poetry, I want to do a plug for Magabala because they've just produced this big volume of in yeah. Indigenous First Nations poetry, a lot of which is in languages and then it's just like loaded with mm. self-representations of ourselves. And, uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, though, those are the sorts of perspectives now we need to, <laughs> need to move on to. Um, and I also think, you know, there's um, Mugabala has also got really good examples of genuine collaborations between Mugabala does because it's a good how to do it right, you know. Yeah. Uh, any other recommendations you'd care to name? Yeah. Um, also, it's also by Magabala, but I would recommend uh, Living on Stolen Land by Amberlynn Quamalina. That's an mm. essential read for anyone who wants to understand decolonisation and, and learn and, and speaking of decentering and destabilising this amorphous nation and looking at Australia as a series of locales. I uh, recommend Ellen Van Neven's recent work, Throat. 
And all these works, as you notice, I'm calling them works or stories or something. I'm kind of avoiding the genre thing. I mean, I know ultimately can't get out of it with marketing, but one of the things our works really does is actually push that containment of this idea that it's got to be fiction, non-fiction, or it's got to be poetry like this, or it's got to be, you know. Yeah, which is essentially, essentially a white construct anyway. It is a white construct. Yeah, another one of those siloing. So Janine, but what I'd what I'd like to now um, invite you to uh, address anything that I might have missed that you would like to raise. Thank you. I think we covered a lot in that conversation. Um, I do want to re reiterate your point. Look, it is important to go back to old texts like Pritchard's and White's. And Michael Griffith, a settler author, wrote a good. Once again, it's an academic book by UWAP um, called Distribution of Settlement, and I reviewed that. And it, it emphasises something I say. There is an importance for white settlers themselves to go back and have a look at their own racist his, literary history in the form of Pritchard, in the form of White, Maloof, and more recently Grenville, to understand where we're all at at the present and not make excuses for it. But you do have to go back to go forward and understand why you're so precious now about um, relinquishing this Carter Blanche to that pun representation, you know, those Carter Blanche kind of rights, invisible charter of rights that you reckon you have to representation. And finally, a lot of people, and there are a lot of thoughtful non-Indigenous people out there, and a lot of people ask, what can I do? What can I do? How can I learn about Aboriginal people? Okay, all right, now read our books. That's Absolutely. what you do, read our books. And that's one way that everyone can be proactive. You can go to a library, you can get stuff online. There's Magabala Books, there's the University of Queensland Press that publish a lot of Indigenous books. Magabala publishes all Indigenous books. Um, Aboriginal Studies Press. Aboriginal Studies Press and other publishers like Hachette and things. It also mm. publish Indigenous authors. And so you can read our books and you can read our essays and you can read our uh, articles and our opinion pieces. And that's what you can do. And they're easily found, and I think we can even go further than that. People can read it, but we can also put these texts into curriculum. And you, and can, you can use it and you can spread the word. That's right. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Janine. Thank you for spending this time. It's been a great talk. I've learnt a lot. Thank and you. Um, I hope the listeners will too. Thanks, Jackie. Pleasure. For more recordings, videos and reading material, including a list of texts mentioned in this conversation, visit the Catherine Susanna Pritchard honouring page at writingnsw.org.au.